Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome on one of my most distinguished guests ever, the legendary coach, Bob King. He really lives up to his name. He is the king of sports training and sports program development as far as I'm concerned. He has been working in the sports field since the 1970s. He has a seven-year history as a NBA strength and conditioning coach, seven-year history as an MLS soccer uh, strength and conditioning coach. He's a gold medal speed coach for the U.S. Skeleton. He's a three-time Super Bowl champion. He was the strength and conditioning coach for the Dallas Cowboys during their Super Bowl run uh, in the 1990s. And he has coached so many professional athletes across so many different sports. And he is such a wealth of knowledge as it relates to speed and athlete development. And I'm super thankful for the time that he was able to give us and this amazing episode that we put together with Bob. Before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Bob, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today, man. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to, to talk about our subject matter today. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with you, could you perhaps share a little bit about yourself and all the amazing accomplishments you've made through the world of strength and speed development? Sure. Um, I would like to say that I think I'm probably the luckiest guy on the planet because opportunities just showed up at the door and I answered. So um, uh, I, I'm a coach. I started coaching back in 19... 19- here it comes, 77, 76, 77. I played uh, college football, you know, through uh, those four years at Texas Tech. Went into coaching and just, you know, that was that was me. Uh, I'm a coach. So I st- stuck with it. Uh, this is in the 70s, early 80s. And I had the opportunity to be exposed to some really, really quality people in, in terms of coaches. Uh, I wanted to learn the profession. So I traveled a lot. I went around the country and whether I attended a clinic or just went and visited with somebody I had the opportunity to just be in the right room at the right time. And just to kind of summarize that, what happened was I was coaching um, high school football and track, uh, doing the strength conditioning program as well at the same time. And I met people and so forth, so on. And uh, I, I had a an individual, a kid that played basketball, whose dad was a general manager for the Dallas Mavericks. And uh, uh, he seemed to be interested in what I was doing. And you have to understand that when, during this time frame, what we know today was not there. Uh, there was only three or four strength coaches in the NBA at the time. I was the fourth or fifth guy in the NBA at the, in that, in the, those days. And so, um, I met a guy that really influenced me a lot. I want to give a shout out to Randy Smythe from speed city back in the day who, uh, really turned me on to the hurdle ladders that I just <laughs> became in love with. And so what we ended up doing is, uh, you know, doing stuff together and I traveled, did some camps. Then he introduced me to Mike Wojcik at the Dallas Cowboys. And he brokered the deal to where, Hey, Bob, why don't you work with, uh, the Cowboys during the Mavericks off season, um, while the Cowboys were ramping up for training camp. So there was no conflict. Unfortunately, the Mavericks weren't going very deep into the playoffs at the time. So I was available. So I was going, it, it, the way it worked out at one point in the eighties and early nineties, I would coach high school football during the week, go to Dallas Maverick practice in the morning. Uh, there was not much in season work for me to do in the off season, in the in season for the Cowboys. So I would coach a high school game on Friday night, go to reunion arena and, and be at a Maverick game or practice on Saturday and Sunday I'd be at the, uh, 
Texas Stadium for a Cowboys game, and then it's just cycled for several years. And so during gone? that time, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had keys to a lot of big arenas, <laughs> and so uh, um, had opportunities, and um, you know, just and then as a result, you, you're going to meet people. And uh, as time went on, um, and I may get my chronology fouled up. Um, I say this a lot. It's, it's not a bad thing and it's not, you know, it's no big deal, but there's two kinds of coaches, those that have been fired and those that are going to be fired. And so, uh, the Mavericks changed ownership and, uh, we all got let go. And when I got let go with the Mavericks, the Cowboys said, come on, let's go. And so now I'm traveling across the country to NFL stadiums with the Cowboys. Uh, and I met somebody who came in for speed training. It turns out they were involved in the skeleton event with the Olympics. And uh, uh, he was uh, involved in uh, the husband and wife team were involved in the administration of the United States Bobsled and Skeleton Federation on the skeleton side. Well, the next thing I know, I'm flying up to Lake Placid, New York, doing a um, speed training for the skeleton wannabes. Uh, you know, we only get three uh, um, men and women each. And so there's 42 athletes up there at Lake Placid. Now we're starting to do skeleton training. And I'm in, I'm in Salt Lake City. Then I'm in Calgary, Canada. And we're training because the Calgary had an ice track indoor. Um, this, just went, this just went on and on and on. And so at the same time, when I was with the Mavericks, the team physician was, you know, became a friend of mine and we all got let go. Well, he ends, he ends up as a team physician with the Dallas burn, which is now FC Dallas. And he called and said, how about soccer? I go, sure. Why not? I'm, I'm doing the Olympics and the NFL and the NBA. I haven't done this one yet. And so, um, uh, I did that for five years. I did the, see, I can't remember how it went. I went to Mavericks for seven years, first strength coach they ever had. The Cowboys for um, uh, six years. We had that Super Bowl run for the 90s, three, three of those. Uh, then I did the uh, Dallas Burn for five years, I believe. I did the Olympics. Uh, did, I'll talk about the Olympics separately in a minute because that's unique. I did the Olympics where my teams won uh, two, uh, two golds and a silver medal, uh, gold on the men and women's side and a silver on the men's side. And then I uh, can't remember what else. Little high school team won a couple of state championships while I was there. I was the defensive coordinator. During that time, I got a call. I retired from coaching to watch the King boys play on Friday night. I got a call from a friend of my wife who said, uh, we're starting football at this little private school. Are you interested in coaching? I go, why not? So I started a uh, football program at a uh, private school here in Dallas and uh, took them through about a five-year stretch. And I, that was a great time because I'd been to the Super Bowl, the gold medals, I did everything I mentioned. Well, we got, we got whooped. And I knew it going in, we're an expansion team. And I called a buddy of mine. I said, Randy, come on. We're going to go do this thing together. So uh, we started the program up and we went 0-9. Uh, see, we went 0-9, 2-8, and and 4-6. And six. And, uh, and after three years, we turned it over and said, all right, you're ready to go. And two years later, they competed for the district championship. So we had built, done a good job of building a, a program there. So there's a lot going on. And, and what I'm saying when I say this is that I've had the opportunity to be around some very incredibly unique situations and some phenomenal people, whether those people were general managers or coaches or athletes or associates. I mean, just the exposure was phenomenal. And I, I, I like to think I, I tried to apply the smartest guy in the room. And that is by just sitting and listening, you know, just be shut up and be quiet and watch. And, uh, uh, I think that helped a lot. Um, 
let me just say this with the USOC, I uh, got my first experience with SST, sports science technology. So we had PhD uh, people from Colorado Springs coming out to Lake Placid for, uh, for training. And that's where I was introduced to dart fish and some of the good video technology that was around at the time. Right. You might jump yeah. in. Let me <laughs> go gonna, come up for air. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you said before, you're a lucky guy. And it certainly seems like you're in the right place at the right time for pretty much everything. That's an impressive yeah. career from yeah. uh, coaching Thanks. in the NFL, leading to Super Bowl championships, uh, coaching speed for the USA skeleton, and having gold medal athletes seven years in the NBA, five to seven years in the MLS. I mean, you've kind of got every credential <laughs> you could ask for. It seems like you've done it all. Well, it was a great opportunity. Like I said, we went to France for training camp in the Dallas burn days because they were the world cup champions. So we figured we'd go play the best. So who's not going to turn, who's going to turn down a trip to Paris. <laughs> so, uh, we spent a, about a week or 10 days there to, for training and, uh, it's, it's fabulous. Um, and so you, what, what, where that goes is this, let me just kind of introduce a little bit of the, the training aspect of it. It really taught the, the message of speed and conditioning. Those two elements were obviously very prevalent in everything I did. Uh, some of the athletes only had seconds. When I say seconds, the skeleton athletes had, um, oh, I don't know. I can't remember when it was no more than two seconds to sprint with the sled and then what they call load, excuse me, they would have to load and get ride the sled down. So, uh, any, anywhere from two seconds to whatever the, uh, I would say a 400 meters is, you know, 44, 45 seconds. Right. So you have a very short window of time that you need to get to top speed and maintain it for, you know, a short duration. Uh, but like you said, there's a conditioning element to that because not everyone can go at top speed for, say, 45 seconds, like you said, for the 400-meter uh, event. Right. And the deal about that is um, it's the repetition of it. So um, uh, I'm trying to, I don't know where to start with this little antidote here is that I was in Lake Placid and I had 42 athletes from around the country and I had to figure out how to communicate to them because most of them, when you're an Olympic athlete, you know... Uh, if people don't know what a podium athlete is during the non-Olympic years, the world championships are the off year Olympics, so to speak. And you identify podium athletes who are the individuals. The USOC is going to see as somebody has a chance to gain a medal and stand on the podium. That's where the funding goes and all the perks and things of training ability or having access to training. That's where they, that goes that those resources, the rest of them are usually trying to raise money to train and to, you know, work certain hours so they can train certain hours and travel and, and pay their own way to Lake Placid or Calgary or wherever we're training Salt Lake city in the winter. And so what happens is you have people from all over the country and in, I had them in this one room and they all have coaches. Everybody has a different coach. Everybody has got a different voice in their ear on what they're supposed to do. And I'm the, the team coach. So now I've got to convince them to listen to me. And so by moving around and, and, and dealing with different sports and different athletes, and what happens is, let me just kind of frame this. If you are in a school, there's a good chance, and I'm going to go on the high end, that that student athlete may be started in fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade, 11th grade, and has been so-called in that system. 
None of these athletes were. I would get players that were, you know, with their, I was their third guy, you know, they'd been with teams and traded or cut and whatnot. So I might've been their third, you know, voice in their ear. And that goes all the way back to when they were in high school, college, now pro. So I had to simplify the language to gain trust that I, I could, you know, I could be trusted with what you hear me say and I do is going to work. So at, at Lake Placid is when the zero to 10 world became, f- you know, full circle because again, they've got 10 meters and they, they got to be on the sled and uh, my work's done. So we came up with our first kind of Bobism or saying, and that is, and it goes like this, if steps one and two are good, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 10 will be fine. And, and we emphasized it, you know, speed wise like that for emphasis because one and two, everything else will take care of itself. And so from there, the athletes understood that I, I was serious that I could help everybody because everybody knew if steps one and two were faster, their load time, because we had uh, what, you know, what's called a load time from the start to on the sled and then the rest of the run. And so from there, you might say zero to 10 was born. And during an off season, I had one of my Maverick players and we're sitting there catching a breath and we're working individually. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, how do you know when to retire? He goes, when I lose my first step. Well, what struck me by that was he answered it at the end of the, at the end of my sentence, when the verbal period was put, he answered it. So he didn't have to go, Hmm, I've never thought about that. I'm not sure. And that's boom. That's that solidifies zero to 10 as being the answer to the sports world or speed training world. So uh, there's closing speed, there's acceler- uh, acceleration or separating speed. There's all those different f- types of speed, <laughs> but step one and step two will make or break you. Definitely. If you don't start on the right foot, then how is the rest going to make up for it? It makes sense. Yeah, and that applies to more than just speed training, right? If yes. you're going for a three or five rep max squat or deadlift, if your first rep is crap, you're probably not oh. going to get the other ones. It kind of yeah. everything falls apart. So if you start on the right foot, the rest just falls into place, like you said. It does. So when it comes to speed training and placing a uh, having the ability to make an athlete faster at whatever distance they're training for, maybe it is just a 10 meter, like you said, or maybe it's a 100 or 200 meter event. Yeah. The focus from what you, it sounds like and from what I'm taking away from what you just said, is on quality, not quantity of training volume. You have to make sure that you have a good first step every single time. And once the quality of that training starts to deteriorate, that's when you cut it. Is that correct? Yes, I would say definitely. And um, there's a couple of, um, oh, I don't know, parenthetical statements that go with this is that um, we, we don't do anything in percentages. We go fast. We or let me back up. We warm up and then we go fast. And so uh, I was in the still this churns through the 80s in the track. You know how fast coach 70, 80 percent? Oh, go 75 percent. You know, and so we we I never could measure that. You know, as far as like well, I can't tell what he's running. So we um, we did several things. Um, another mixed bag. I was reading the. Um, uh, resources that we had uh, called track coach and it and there was a publication and at the back of the publication it had what's called world roundup and there you know anecdotes from around the world would be published from coaches and athletes and there was two things that struck me one uh 
a, um, an American, I can't remember his name, but our best 10,000 meter guy had gone to London to train. And there were several of the Ethiopian athletes. And so everybody knows everybody. You see them all the time at meets and not just the Olympics, but in, you know, throughout the circuits and so forth. And so they'd get together and train together. And the American comes back and he says, oh my God, I cannot believe the pace they train at. And so uh, I just kind of looked at that and go, hmm, it's an interesting concept. Now I know it's 10,000 meters, but how come that wouldn't work everywhere? And so we started to evolve our training into a lot of different areas. So for example, when I trained 16 and 3,200 meter runners, we dropped mileage at some point, you know, I, you know, how far coach five miles? Six, no, I don't know. I'll see you in 40 minutes. So I'm going to see you sustain a 40 minute run. We have a trail off campus and go do 40 minutes. And then we would, I could regulate it throughout the season. And I'll just make this up because I don't have the numbers with me here, but we go 20 minutes, 20 minutes and 25, 25 and 30, come back 20. And so we build up on minutes. And so that turned out to be hugely successful with our athletes who competed as well as they could. Now that said, I will tell everybody that comes in, everybody I train is learning to be a sprinter. Now, I don't care if you're a shot putter because the number one element is speed in the ring. You cannot be slow in the ring and get to shot put anywhere. You must have speed in the ring and that goes for the discus. Um, so we train everybody to be a sprinter. So that starts with the mechanics, mechanics produce efficiency and so forth. Now, what we tell them to keep them from freaking out, like I'm not a sprinter, I'm a, I'm a goalie. I, I don't go anywhere. Well, if you train to be a sprinter with me while we're doing the work, because of the time that you invest in your sport, we call it your sports posture will take over at the time it needs to. It's not going to ruin you that you're running mechanically down the field like a sprinter and can't play the implement, whatever it is, a soccer, baseball, anything. You will get back into your sports posture because the time element is way disproportional for what you do with me versus the time in practice and competition. It kind of blows my mind, just the kind of principles that you use. They're simple, but it's stuff that like I never would have thought of. I never would have thought of the point of, like you said, running faster, right? So when you worked with endurance athletes, you gave them that 40-minute time to run, uh, and you said, just go run. Like, I'll see you in yeah. 40 minutes. It wasn't a, you know, you have to run this, you know, certain split, this certain, like, pace, that sort of thing. It was run. And I'll see you in 40 minutes. Yes. It was simple. And I think in general, we get so lost in some of the data sometimes. It's great to have data for research purposes and analytics. But sometimes yes. we get so caught up in it that we kind of lose sight of what actually works. You know, does it really matter if an athlete is running a, you know, 530 average pace in their training if it has little to no carryover uh, to their actual <laughs> competition? you want to win the race. And so the training, the training matters. You want to log all what you said for the athletes, uh, uh, benefits. So the athletes want feedback. And if I just said, you look, yeah, you look good. Well, you know, that's not really, as you go up to higher levels, they want to know the real nuts and bolts of what they're doing. Now that said, let me put it like this. Um, I told you about everybody, I trained everybody to be a sprinter. And again, back with, uh, I think 5,000 meters as far as I went, because I had a, a guy that was I was working with for the Olympic trials, and he was a 5K guy, 5,000 meter rather. And so 
if I train everybody how to be a sprinter, then when I was working with 16 and 3,200 meter guys and girls, it would be now I want to teach you go out and run 40 minutes. And then on other interval days and speed days, I'm going to train you how to win a meter race because in, you know, on the 16 and 32, you're on the oval. And so it, it starts sooner than that. It'll start around 400 meters. Some, some great athletes will go six to 800 meters. But if we're close at 200 meters, I want you to win because you know how to run a 200 meter race. And that's, that happens all the time. You see them just, you know, outside the, uh, the anomaly of the individual who just sits there and, and, you know, drafts or whatever for, uh, you know, six of the eight laps and at the 800 just says goodbye. If you're in a race, you need to win a 200 meter race. Is That's the way I approached it. And you can always see it on our track, on our, our meets, our guys and girls that all of a sudden at 200, they're, they would take off. Even if it meant for them just placing and getting points for the team, if it was fifth, they were still going to win that 200 meters to get those points. Right. And that's applicable for, like you said, any distance. If you're running a 400, yes. own the second half of that 400. If you're running an 800, own the last 25%. It doesn't matter what distance you're doing. You have to own the end. And there's kind of an art to that, right? You want to leave enough in the tank energy-wise, so to speak, in order to give you that kick towards the end of the race. Yes. That that comes with time. You're exactly right. That comes with time. That comes with practice. And like you said, intentional training. So you didn't go out and smoke your athletes any day, right? Any coach can go in there and smoke an athlete in training and call it conditioning. You know, <laughs> we can. I'm glad. I'm glad you're saying that. <laughs> I am so glad you're saying that because that's just that has got to go away. Right. <laughs> that has got to stop. And I will promise you this. And I don't have a. I'm short on data, but I will promise you that my athletes, any athlete I was in charge of at any level has run less than any peer at their level. Because, um, we found, we found this thing out, um, back to the, uh, 10,000 meter people training fast. Um, we did a deal and this is, <laughs> this is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. We call, we call, uh, we have what we call high speed one tens. Now that's, a, that matters 110 yards. That's hundred meters. And so it's, it's a speed conditioning, speed endurance thing. Every Saturday we're on the track at 11 o'clock. And so, uh, no, no matter what time of year, because you know, if it's summer or, I mean, yeah, if it's summer, we want to start touching the heat and whatnot, but 11 o'clock and about once a month, every three weeks, we do high speed one tens. We do six hundred meters or 110 yards and that's it, just six. And we want you to run at 95% of your perceived effort. The first one we call a freebie because you're trying to get your gear down. Uh, now, to, to use a round example, if you're running 12 flat and that's a good time for you, don't go over 12.2 and don't run under 11, uh, what would it be, 11.8. So keep three to four tenths range and just consistently do that. So what we would do on Saturdays because of my, my background, that was our one ten day. We'd run, go out and run anywhere from eight and then 10 and 12 and 14, one tens on Saturday was spreading out the high speed. We did the high speed stuff and we found that guys, um, <laughs> were pretty much toast because they didn't do it very often. We ran them so that if you ran 12 flat, 12, one, 11, nine, 12 flat, 12, four, we're done. 
This is not suck it up and power through it. This is to run fast. So if your time is 12 flat and you're running 12, four, 12, five, we're finished. And so most of the time we would get six. I'm the timer so I can dictate it. And so, um, what we did was we'd run that. Then we came back the next Saturday to run our regular timed intervals, which were like a 1745 rest work relief ratio. And so all of a sudden the guys, that was, those, those slower intervals were faster. Their body remembered what they did a week ago. And now the whole thing was going faster. So if a guy was uh, running around 16 and his 110 strides, he was down around 14, five. And so the high speed did two things. One, it just made us faster. Secondly, the conditioning elements there, because um, uh, the way we did it on the high speed, you ran, then you had a three to five minute break. And at three minutes, I raised my hand at the other end. If you're not ready, you signal no. At five, I raised my hand, we're either going or you're done. And that formula worked, has worked since the start to this day. And it's just been a phenomenal for speed development and the endurance element. That's amazing, Bob. And again, I love the focus on quality, not quantity, right? This isn't mm -hmm. a conditioning kind of drill. You want to make people faster. You want athletes to be able to increase their sprint speed. And while doing something like, you know, 300 burpees will leave them, you know, absolutely gassed. That's not going to mm -hmm. make them run faster. That's not specific, uh, as far as the adaptation you want to impose on that athlete. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying this, um, hard doesn't mean good. Right. And difficult is easy to implement. And so, yes. you know, it's, it's like, uh, uh, you know, I'll do not build a monument to yourself when you get into program design. That's, that's my program design, I think, is ultimately my bread and butter. But do not build a monument to yourself because, hey, look at this program. It's killer. Well, yeah, it uh, doesn't mean it's good, but it's massive. So that's, that's the tricky part. And uh, I will say this, in our summer program, we have athletes from everywhere. You know, they're boys, girls, um, mostly high school and college and all the sports. And 100% of my athletes have gone back to their sport in college or high school and successfully accomplished their conditioning test. And we have a method, that's a whole nother story. We have a method for how we accommodate all these different types of tests coaches have for their athletes that we have to deal with that they're, um, they're trying to get ready for. Uh, it's just impossible to do all the different tests, but at the same time, we found a way to uh, circumvent the, the group aspect and still achieve what we want. Right. And that's a whole nother element. Like you said, is, you know, you get college yep. athletes and a coach will be like, okay, well, when you come back, we're doing a mile run. And if you don't make this time, then you're not on the team. And that measure has no carryover to oh, yeah. sprint speed or their ability to perform in a game. It just is a general measure of, you know, cardiovascular endurance in that sense. So like you said, it can be difficult to mm -hmm. balance uh, both sprint training running faster with the endurance piece because they're opposite ends of the training spectrum, but it sounds like you do it quite well. What's been your uh, kind of secret to that? Do you uh, use a very individualized training approach or do you kind of balance the workout days and speed days with more low intensity, steady state training days, or how do you go about balancing speed and endurance at the same time? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that's, that's a great question. Like we rehearse this or something because <laughs> 
that is built into our system. Right. <clears throat> what we do or operate, and this is just where it evolved. It's just the light goes on and I said, hey, here's what we're doing. We do themes. Okay. So for example, uh, in my speed program on a, on a summer basis where we have, you know, the freedom to do more of what we want, we operate on themes and it goes like this. Monday is zero to 10. That's our first step training day. And that involves all the gadgets we use, whether it's cables or just whatever we do. And we've got that menu is huge. Tuesday is change of direction and it's just generic. And so here's, <laughs> here's my opinion. And so you work on this. I don't think there's but one way to go forward, one way to shuffle, one way to go backwards and one way to cross over. And so, you know, in other words, forward, back, lateral. And so, um, try to get this quick. We do generic change of direction, soccer players, basketball players, the, the footwork's going to be the same. Cause I found out in the NFL, the NFL offensive linemen were just like the front court players of the NBA. I mean, the, the footwork is short and, and quick and choppy. And so, you know, I develop a drill for the basketball and just take it to the offensive lineman and it just, it worked. And so, um, what we ended up doing is putting these, uh, these themes together and have, um, the change of direction on Tuesday, Wednesday, we called zero to 30. We took our runs on out further so we could control them. We didn't want to go any further because we would take all day coming back and recovering. So, uh, at 30 you're done. Okay. Thursday was our as sport specific as possible change of direction. And so we had a bag of drills we had for basketball, we had for soccer and all these other sports that were change of direction kind of things. And then we narrowed it down to, we have court sports, tennis, basketball, um, volleyball, and we had field sports like baseball, soccer, football, and lacrosse. And so we try to combine those to come in with a sport specific change of direction. And on Thursday, we don't run on Friday. It's just a strength day because Saturday we're on the track, one tens and high speed stuff. And so the themes are what we use to establish how do we, you know, address everything these, all these athletes need without burning them out or out being boring because we're doing so much repetition. It just, it's not the adaptations done. And so from that, we started creating a whole bunch of different variations. And so, um, uh, Real quick one is we learned how to use the medicine ball for a lot of stuff. You put the medicine ball in your hands on the ladder, your feet better work. Uh, you don't have any hands to help propel. And so we have, you know, we just, we just say to the athletes, teach the feet, teach the feet. And so we'll put the medicine ball in their hand. Well, we need transitions. We think there's a huge amount of time. And now when I say time, it could be guarding somebody or escaping somebody. Uh, transitions are huge. And so some of our drills, uh, so for example, with both the hurdles and ladders, we have a, um, an end point and we will sprint to a cone at the, some farther away. So say I do a half a ladder, something like carry a medicine ball with two hands in the middle of your body. So you're not cheating with it. You go through the ladder, drop it to the side, sprint to the cone. So you get your arms back and you should accelerate. So there's, there's three transitions there. One from stop to start Two, when you get rid of the implement, get rid of the medicine ball and turn into the run and three finish correctly, which is not so much a transition as just like maintain. And so we started doing these kind of things and it's like, okay, we have what we call the hurdle ladder alley where we, we run in between them and we go through each of them. We had the hurdle ladder straight away. And so we started developing transitions to work on, keeping speed 
let's say high speed in change of direction or, or transition. So we started just playing with it. Right. Now, one of the things you mentioned there was you used the hurdle ladder a lot. There's a lot of debate yep. in the sports industry about what is the most effective way to train speed. You know, should the athletes use hoops? Should they use ladders? Should they do hurdles? What's the most effective way? Uh, it certainly sounds like you like the hurdle ladders and the different drills that come with that, the alley, the straightaway and so on. Uh, so is that something that you found effective long term or have you kind of played around with other kind of speed tools, I'll call them? So we, we have the tools. Uh, we have the resistance trainings and the overspeed training. Um, so here's the deal. Um, our zero to 10 and zero to 30 days. Um, mm -hmm. The hurdles and ladders are become really kind of an extended warm up because uh, we may do half a ladder and 10 hurdles. And so we're going to ensure heat. Um, we just say, we tell them, get your grease pumping. And uh, we stretch and do whatever, but the, the heat, the internal heat's what I'm really after. And so it wakes up everything because we're not all starting at the same point. And so you can watch as they kind of go through the, uh, the, the toys and see, you know, kind of where they're at. And so we get them warmed up. And one of the, this was really a, a cool thing that we stumbled onto. And, and so we do the hurdles and ladder. And I got to thinking, man, that's a, you know, it's a three foot step. It's a 19 inch box. That's, we got to fix that. And so we started implementing what we call speed breaks. And so depending on the space we have, we would sprint anywhere from 10, uh, 20 to 30 yards during about uh, a 12 to 14 drill break. And so we do the, the apparatus, the hurdle or ladder, speed break, and then grab a drink. And usually that's when I would make a change. And so the speed break we do one or two 30 yard sprints and get their stride, get back into sprinting. Don't, don't get so specific. You, you have a short choppy stride now. And so what we discovered, this was so cool. We would be early on when we do that, they go back to the apparatus and all of a sudden they couldn't maintain their step. Cause why the body remembers what it did last. And so the last thing they did was open, you know, depending on the athlete, maybe a six, seven foot stride. Well, they came back, their body wanted to do that on a three foot stride. And so it was so cool to watch like, okay, wait a minute, this is what's happening here. And so now we're forcing turnover because they don't have the length to get the stride out there. So speed breaks, if anybody's taking notes or something, if you're doing gadgets, we call them, you better use speed breaks because you're missing a huge benefit that comes from doing that. Right. That's uh, very good advice, Bob. I just think back to my own high school football days and we used to do kind of like a bag drill. We uh, didn't have a speed ladder at the time. We just had bags that we kind of placed uh, where the rungs of the ladder would be. And we would jump over them and do hurdle hops and we would run over them and run between them. Yeah. Uh, but we never really changed the distance that they were spaced. We never really changed where we started and where we finished. It was just you yeah. go through the bags. And then the you next day of practice, you go through the bags again. Uh, so it's amazing how, you know, even at the time, the, the coaches probably didn't think about, you know, what would happen if we moved these bags a little bit further apart or a little bit closer together? What would happen if we started tweaking some of these small variables? And that really speaks to the importance of attention yes. to detail when it comes to not only speed training, but all athletic training in general. You have to be able to sweat the small stuff. And if you don't, then you're not going to get the most optimal result out of the training that you're implementing. What I was going to say about the hurdles and stuff is we have th three different spacings. Um, and so uh, <laughs> this is, um, 
uh, back in the day, like I said, I was still dressing and, and running with the athletes to an extent where I um, uh, would play with it. And so our standard spacing on our hurdles is three foot, 10 to 12 hurdles. And so with 12 hurdles, one day I, you know, did the what if kind of thing. So, uh, you know, no big deal. We moved 12 hurdles out to a four foot spacing known today as the spatial illusion. <laughs> so in it, four foot, it's not huge, but four foot spacing for some people is like, that's a long first step. And so the way it works is when they run, you can see it every time they start running and there's different patterns and about the middle, it's hard to say, maybe five through eight, you see, it looks like a good comfortable speed, uh, turnover, uh, stride turnover. And then all of a sudden the hurdles just shrink but they're not, you're picking up speed and all of a sudden you haven't adapted to it. And your turnover is trying to, it thinks it's getting ready to stretch out. And all of a sudden the hurdles don't move. They stay at four feet and you're speeding up. And so now you can, the cool thing about it is you can turn your back and hear it. You know, you hear pop, And so their, their pattern is changing. And so you get, you, you, here's the deal. I want to make a point of when we are doing anything. And I mentioned this earlier, we say, if you make us, mistake recover that's athletic okay you know kids understandably if they make a mistake on the ladder the typical thing is to stop and kind of laugh and say oh i messed up don't stop the worst thing you can do on the hurdles or the ladder is to stop if you make a mistake recover that's athletic and so if you just dump this mindset out there that everything we're doing is purposeful then the response the kids the athletes just buy into it and it just makes the program better Definitely. When you have a purpose for every action, every action is mm -hmm. going to have a result. And that result yeah. should be uh, what you're looking for, right? How important is strength training in the development of speed and the athlete overall? I will tell you this strength training is critical. Um, I will quote uh, Remy Korchimi, who was a uh, back in the day when the while we were you, the Americans, we were just like the Eastern Europeans were the bomb. Man, these guys are awesome. So they were over here speaking all the time. And I sat in a room and listened to the Romanian and the, and the Russian argue. <laughs> it, it was pretty entertaining because I, I guess I could understand each other. But in the lecture before the argument, the guy that he said, and I quote, you cannot be fast if you are not strong. And, uh, and so, you know, there's no question that didn't, that didn't turn me on to strength training because we were already doing it, but it's like, thank you for that endorsement. We do everything. We are, we're going to bench squat deadlift. Uh, we do as many of the Olympics as is reasonable. The snatch is so coaching intensive. Um, I don't do it with, except for a few advanced people, but, um, we do our lift. We're typically a three day lift. Uh, we can do four day split. That's not a big deal, but I have so much I want to do that. I don't want to spend it all in the weight room, but what I was alluding to earlier was zero to 10. We sprint, then we lift zero to 30. And with our program, we tell them the athletes, look, we're running in the summer, for example, let's say around it off. We run at noon. Okay. Period. If you want to come lift before or stay and lift after that's up to you because athletes have such different and with the Cowboys, we did that. You know, we had running groups and guys come lift whenever because, oh, I don't want to lift after. Oh, I don't want to run before, you know, whatever. And so I don't care. I've looked at it 14,000 different ways and I don't think it matters. Um, um, so as long as you're warmed up and ready to go, then you should be okay. And so what we end up doing is lifting, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're running you know, five days a week though, because we're on Monday through Thursday and then on Saturday. So the reason we don't run on uh, Friday 
is I do save them because uh, if we if we have a big big squat in our workout, it's Friday. If we're doing anything heavy duty, um, we trade it off. And so that we do, um, complexes on Friday where we do a, a, a lift, a jump and a run, which is really a cool whole complex right there. And so we do the, uh, the, like squat, a weighted jump, a contrasted unweighted jump, and then s- some sprints. And so, uh, we try to, uh, you mentioned this a minute ago, but the key to all of this is, uh, programming and rotating. And so, uh, I bring things in and out of the program. Um, by, by, uh, no means do I want people to think that I don't do anything besides hurdles and ladders, but they are such an integral part of what we do. I have what we call in, I have four, I can't, it doesn't matter, four or five speed bags. They all have the same contents of, uh, 12 hurdles, a ladder. I don't know about 10 cones and whatever else I've got in there. So, uh, we call it speed to go. If somebody calls, Hey, I've got a soccer team. Can y'all come out and say, boom, get two speed bags. Let's go. And so they're, they just work with the masses and they are productive. Now, uh, as they athletes advance, you have to challenge them. Uh, one of my favorite things is we will get medium weight, medium weight being six to eight pound medicine balls and run with them. And we'll put it, We'll put a medicine ball in your hands, carry it waist high in the middle of your body and your arms, your shoulders are going to do, you know, you don't have any counterbalance. So they're going to just let them do what they want to do. They'll wiggle. And so we run with that to get their knees up and then we'll run seven yards, get rid of the ball, get your arms back and take off. Then we'll get two medicine balls. So now your both arms are restricted. You're 16 pounds heavier. And so we're getting a loaded type of run making the contrast run much more uh, significant and impressive. And then we do, like I said, bands, resistive releases, et cetera. So we have the whole bag of tricks, I think. Definitely. It certainly sounds that way, Bob. One of the things that it becomes kind of a common uh, theme or topic when we talk about loaded running is pushing a sled, sled pushes, sled pulls. They're kind of a very popular thing right now for internet trends and different CrossFit athletes and so on. How do you feel about uh-huh. sled training? Is that a great way to build the muscles needed for speed? Or is it sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a waste, but does it do less than people think it does? Um, <laughs> a very uh, politically sensitive question. <laughs> um, I will say this, um, I use it. I mean, like I said, I don't think if it's in our facility, I use it. If it's not in there, I'll go get it if I need it, or it's not important. Now the sled is a tool in the toolbox. And so, um, we mostly will push it. We do some towing. I have other devices for, and that's just resistance running, but here's the deal. We set it up to where we push the sled and we immediately go to the straightaway and hit the sprint, the contrast, always thinking contrast. And so it, it, let me think, I think it'll play more into our summer program for just a conditioning tool. Um, I don't dislike it, but what I do dislike is I saw a summer brochure for a guy one year and he had, uh, he showed a bunch of, you know, young athletes pushing the sleds. Well, the problem was he was promoting high school on down to middle school. So they took that many different athletes. I'm just going to be fairly accurate to say eighth grade through high school pushing a sled, but all the sleds had the same weight. 
that's a nightmare. Yeah. Okay. It's like, Seriously. you know, you got a, you got a big high school lineman with 90 pounds and you've got an eighth grade basketball player with 90 pounds. Okay. You're fired. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, the sled has to, these, all these things have to be regulated. Okay. And so when I say regulated, here's the rule. What does it do to your mechanics? If your mechanics start to fail, then something's wrong. The drill's wrong. The resistance is wrong. And so there are alterations. Okay. I'm not, you know, if you push an object, your, your whole stride is not going to go out to the normal stride speed length, but just watch it. Are you on the, are you flat footed? Are you hitting your heel? Uh, where's your, you know, where's your posture? So speed, uh, technique and mechanics will dictate the value of the drill. So you gotta be real careful when you're doing that. Definitely. And I completely agree with everything you said. I've worked in uh, facilities in the past that, you know, everyone gets the sled, it seems. And it doesn't matter if it's athletes or the boot camp, everyone's pushing and pulling the sled that day. But there's never any individualization to the training, right? It's just here's the workout and everyone's mm. going to do it. And that never really, uh, really waved my flag, so to speak, uh, because you don't tailor uh, your program design to the needs of the individual athlete in front of you. You have to find ways to cater to the masses, but also tailor your uh, programming to the needs of an athlete. You know, if an athlete can't squat the parallel, then I'm not going to have them do front squats where their butt and uh, hit depth where their butt is two or three inches off the ground, right? They can't do it. Yeah. So I'm not going to expect them to. And that's a huge element of programming that's just missing from so many uh, schools and coaches and overall training programs, I think. Well, if you're worth your salt as a coach, it's not hard to individualize it. You know, I say, well, everybody does it. Well, everybody does it the way they can, you know, the way they can do it if instruction wise. So for example, in our facility, we have, you know, the squat racks. And if, if that bar is not friendly to them, we go put them on the bear squat to learn the posture and the position. And so, uh, it's a machine and it, but it's not going to hurt them. And you can watch the, the joints and all the posture take place as far as when they go down, where's their spine, where their hips, everything. And so you can safely teach them. And then we have other devices that we use. Um, we have, uh, as an example, in our speed program, we have what we call the LGs. LGs are little guys and little girls. And so we have rules that go along with that. And so what I started doing, the speed program grew in those early days. Uh, we took, um, the ladder will, it will separate everybody in a hurry. Icky shuffle. Oh, no, no, no. This is, so we do not want, we do not cater to the weak. We cater to the strong in our program. So what we do to amend that is we had an intro ladder. And so we would take the ladder, the break in half. And if, if depending on how far we had to go down, we'd have our, you know, our veteran athletes on the long ladder and we put the, the LGs and, and little girls, little guys on a half ladder and just, you know, one step, two step, and just advance them as they could. Everybody can do the speed break, no big deal. And so we have, um, so it became LGs, little guys, little girls, and then it became new people. We, we do not going to, I'm not going to slow down a bunch of accomplished athletes while I teach, you know, a new person to do the icky shuffle. I had my assistant go to the, the train ladder and, in, you know, introduce something or take the, the newbies and, and learn them at their pace, teach them at their pace so they could learn. And everybody's happy. They're not being run over by the veteran athletes and the veteran athletes aren't leaving because they're not getting any work. So 
it's real easy to to fix these things right and especially with the uh strength pyramids that you were talking about earlier right this isn't just uh catering to the individual from a speed standpoint but also a strength standpoint you said you would do a compound movement follow it with a lighter movement maybe a plyometric something for post-activation potential Mm -hmm. and then a sprint so you know you could think uh, box squat or back squat right into a box jump right into a uh, short distance sprint right and yep, maybe someone it. maybe someone can't do a box squat so you do a dumbbell goblet squat maybe someone mm-hmm. is uh asymmetric so you know they shift towards one direction during their squat mm-hmm. or when they jump they really favor one side over the other so maybe to correct that you start doing lunges and jump lunges so they have to use each leg individually yes. there's countless ways to individualize that programming and again to our point earlier it just doesn't make sense uh for a good strength and speed coach to not tailor their program design to the specific athlete they're working with at that time well to go along with what i mentioned earlier you know we have our speed themes throughout the week um our conditioning depending on the athletes because we had to you know we had to package it up our conditioning matched the, the speed themes and I'm coming back to the strength here in a second. The speed, you know, zero to 10, we did shorter, you know, intervals on the, on the conditioning. When we got into the meat, we swapped it. We did speed it. I like summers. It's the, the full meal deal. In summer, weeks one and two, we just, we're just getting into it. We're not assuming anybody has gotten a whole lot of background. Uh, they've maybe have come from spring training or what, whatever. So first two, and what we discovered over time, we had a real nice retention. So we'd have kids come back or athletes come back the next summer. It's like, we got to speed this up. So now one week transition. And so we did a two week training turnover. So we'd be on a program for two weeks and change it. We didn't do any Olympics until probably the second or third week of June and, and give them time to kind of get acclimated. Now here's the way the themes go on the weightlifting we just did whatever I had scheduled for Monday. I mean, we would, you know, bench and just depending on the athlete, cause we had, uh, we have individual sheets and it's so easy the way we do our, our, we gave our athletes, instead of putting it on a grease board, we handed they had their own workout sheet and it just had the heading on there, soccer strength, one, uh, basketball strength, two and stuff. And so the one, two, three just told me what level they were at. So it didn't mean anything to them, but it told me, Oh, you've been on strength two for two weeks. We got to go to three. And so we would dictate then the leg work for that. And so Monday was just a basic old strength day, you know, the reps schemes, that's a whole different story. Now, Wednesday was our balance day. And so it was dominated by a lot of dumbbell work, dumbbell incline, dumbbell press, dumbbell row, dumbbell combination, hammer press, whatever. So a lot of dumbbells so we could expose, uh, you know, when your right side is way overpowering your left. So it shows up with the dumbbell work, single leg, whatever we had on the schedule. Friday was that big lift day. We're just going to power it. We're going to, we're going to squat big or deadlift big. We're going to do whatever we're going to do big as the summer progressed we only did Olympics on Wednesday, you know, again, I'm doing a three day deal. We just did Olympics on Wednesday and I took a deep breath with this. And again, you got to come back to the late eighties, early nineties. When we developed this cycle, we never had a problem. Our Olympic guys, our Olympic lifts went up because that's your only lift lift. <laughs> you're only lifting Olympics on Wednesday. Yeah. But we're not taking off the other seven, six days. We're still 
lifting, running, and jumping. Now, let me just inter inter interrupt myself. I don't care where you are on the planet or another planet and what language you speak or sport you coach, you do one of three things in your program. And this is where we use the whole LRJ. You either lift, you run, or jump. And you can tell me, no, we don't lift weights. We do bands. Oh, resistance training. You're lifting. Okay. Just understand lifting is resistance training. Well, the only, we don't really do bands or ladders or hurdles. We do this. Oh, you run. Okay. So just go right down the line. You lift or run or jump or a combination of those, which LRJ is what we uh, um, title our, our work with. And so when we do that, it helps us put everything into the right place. So on Wednesday, um, you know, when we start doing the Olympic lifts, we're doing an explosive movement. So we're jumping a second day, even though we just typically do plyometrics on, on, uh, on Friday, but wait a minute, we do hurdle hops and things. So we jump rope, wait, a minute. we're doing plyometrics all the time. So does it have to be a massive 32 inch box? Not quite. It can be a jump rope. It can be the hurdles. And so everything, everything is connected period. And so if we only do something once a week, that's, that doesn't mean anything. It just means that we're, when I visit uh, schools or talk to coaches, a red flag goes up when they say we do a lot of, wait a minute, a lot of what now? Where's the, where's the rest of it? And so um, I don't do a lot of hurdles and ladders. That's a key part of our program, but on Tuesday and Thursday, change of direction days, I may just pour it on the hurdles and ladder because we have a ton of drills that just facilitate that lateral movement. Monday and Wednesday, especially Wednesday, I may be on the hurdles five minutes and I'm off. And the rest of the program is all the big stuff. So it, it needs to be, uh, context needs to be made so that people understand that we do as much of stuff we can to rotate stimulus. Number one, keep the body interested. And number two, keep the mind interested. Definitely. I can't echo your point more about how everything in the body is interconnected and we have to train it all together, right? A lot yeah. of athletes, uh, you know, they'll do this in the gym, they'll do this uh, from a speed training standpoint, they'll try and separate everything out, right? You know, today's going to be my arm day, and then they're going to go and go to practice and do their training and so on. And then today is going to be, you know, shoulder day and the next day will be chest day. And, you know, they work everything in isolation. And yeah. uh, even yeah. some coaches might encourage that uh, from what I've seen. And again, like you said, everything is interconnected. Athletes don't go on the field. You know, no one walks onto the football field and decides they're only going to use their arms that day or only their legs that day. That's not how sports work. <laughs> and there's a huge differentiation between, you know, the training that a lot of people end up doing. Uh, for sports. So what we would kind of consider more of like a either powerlifting or bodybuilding type approach, depending on where you're at and who your coach is, uh, there tends to be biases towards those uh, two training styles. When in reality, athletes need yes. to use everything together. They need to work their various uh, stabilization subsystems. They need to work the serapes, which are the rotational uh, muscular connections in the body. They need to do sport specific movement patterns uh, repeatedly that um, work the muscles that they specifically need in the manner that they specifically need mm -hmm. for the sport, uh, specific adaptation to impose demand, like we talked before. Uh, and like I said, I'll kind of circle back on myself now. Uh, it's just crazy to me how misunderstood 
training for athletes, especially when it comes to speed is, uh, you know, there's people that I've worked with in the past who have just kind of said, you know, we're going to do weighted jump squats and push a sled and do some jumps and we're going to call it speed training. And, you know, that's great. <laughs> but when you do that twice a week, no one's actually getting better. There's no uh, intention. There's no actual sprinting going into it. Some people wouldn't even break out a ladder and they'd call it speed training. Uh, so I think this is certainly a topic that needs to uh, have light shed on it. And someone like you, who's been in the industry for, uh, well, literally longer than I've been alive, <laughs> is certainly the guy to okay. do it. Careful now, careful. <laughs> you know, I get, um, I just want people to understand it. Here's what I tell, you know, whoever, it depends on the, the context. In our program, here's what we say. Football players play football. Basketball players play basketball. Soccer players play soccer and on and on athletes do whatever they want. And so we try to think athletic development is our key. Now we we've got programs to, to address whatever my, my offensive lineman that I trained that I have any, we have plenty of 400 pound squatters and 300 plus pound bench pressure. We got all that. And uh, maybe that's not a heavy weight in some people's world, but the development we do, they're headed that way because they may go off to college and, and crack a new barrier. But when they do go off to college, they're totally prepped. Uh, they're not, uh, we, we quiz them when they come back in the, in May from college. Well, how was it? Did you pass your test? Did you do okay? And the coach is fine. And uh, I will take the college summer training programs, get these things that guys have written monuments to themselves. I say, okay, let me, let me translate this. I'm going to show you how to do these because they're not in our program and you'll be expected to do it, but I'll show you how to do these movements, but we're, we're really not going to do this. And we crush the test anytime they go back and they are successful in their field or quarter play. And it's just a matter of, it's not me. It's the athletes executing a program designed to make you faster stronger and i don't care about bigger because if you're faster and stronger you play bigger and so that that's how that kind of plays out that's definitely true i think back again to high school football our nose guard on the team was a 155 pound wrestler right uh -huh. and you look at offensive linemen that he's going up against they're you know 270 280 and he's pushing them around all over the place because he had the strength like you said when you have the strength and the speed you play bigger well, you know, back to the pro days for a minute, like I said, I coached, I coached high school sports for 20 years. So it's not like I dabbled. I was in it. And, um, I'm a member of the Texas high school coach association, the whole nine yards. So, um, I'm in it to win it. Um, the deal is, um, you learn stuff. I had a, a, a NBA coach, one of my Maverick coaches, we went through so many of them. Uh, we were doing pre-draft training and, uh, evaluation or getting a guy, it just matter, didn't matter. We get a guy in and over time on multiple sports, and especially in football with the, again, with the linemen and the big men in basketball, I had two questions I had coaches could ask me. So if I say coach, this guy can squat 500, he can bench 400, he's got a 93 inch vertical jump and I could list all that stuff. Coaches trump me every time Two work, two questions. How's his feet? Can he play? How's his feet? can he play? And so that just resonated because I had no choice. I wasn't the decision maker. I mean, I have pulled the trigger on guys in the NBA draft and said, this guy we want. And cause I worked them out and compared to players, but the deal is the coach is going to say, how's his feet? Can he play and all those other numbers? They are a 
test numbers and things are important. It's important for the athlete's mindset and it's important for the strength coach to be able to evaluate the progress of the program. So if you don't test, you don't know if you're going anywhere, but that's not the end all. So the how's his feet and can he play? Can he play? Not my department. So now the feet, definitely my department. So the, you know, game on, so to speak. Definitely. Bob, you've shared so much amazing insight and knowledge about your uh, training programs and how to coach speed. Where can people find more? Because I know you have a great online presence and you share a lot of this same uh, insight and you work with athletes and coaches across the world, really, uh, to help them develop their own kind of coaching approaches and learn from the system that you implement. Where can people find out more about you? Well, you can go to uh, kingsportstraining.com. Uh, we have a, a pretty, pretty hefty website. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. My oldest son is my producer director and all, and he has done a great job of, of uploading us a, a really great website, uh, King sports training on YouTube. We have, uh, I don't know, hundreds of videos available for, uh, all the drills and, and I'm talking and, and stuff, uh, at coach Bob King, we're on Instagram and, uh, other platforms that, um, just look for at coach Bob King and, uh, we show up all over the place. Um, but the, the two big ones I like for me personally is the, uh, uh, we're, uh, we have a Twitter going and I've started loading some of the shorter TikToks. So, uh, look for coach Bob King and we're all over the place. You're on TikTok. That's impressive, Bob. <laughs> yeah. My, my Aaron is the, he's the guy he's got me putting out these little, whatever they are, 15, 30 second shots. So <laughs> it's a new world for the, the old coach. <laughs> Definitely. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts that you want to share with our listeners about speed and strength and all of the different things that we've talked about? Let me make a comment that I want they, the people hear this, or I'm told this, and I want to qualify the statement. And it's this, well, you just can't make it, you can't make anybody faster. And uh, it's like, okay, wait a second. That has to be a qualified statement. So when it comes to talking about speed, um, I never tell anybody that, well, I just can't make anybody faster. Why? Well, if mechanics produce efficiency and efficiency produces speed and speed exposes flaws, then we can do things to help you individually become faster. I didn't say anything about the Olympics. I didn't say anything about pro sports, but how can I make you faster than you yesterday? So yes, um, you're, you have that genetic code, that genetic programming that you are, you know, basically you're stuck with it. But let's pull, my job is to pull everything out of you that you have, not to just predetermine that, mm, you know, you're, you got the short end of the speed stick. I don't, I don't work like, like that. So I encourage everybody to make the attempt, go see how much faster you can make yourself. How's your feet? Great. Awesome advice, Bob. Thank you again for your time and for coming on and sharing all of your, uh, again, valuable knowledge and insight with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate your time. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming exciting episodes. And please make sure you check us out on social media at Brawn Body on all platforms. I'd also really appreciate it if you left a review and shared this episode with a friend. The more reviews we get and the more people we get the word out to about the podcast, the more people we can help make positive changes in their personal health and fitness. Thank you as always for your support and looking forward to giving you another exciting episode next week.